course, I have something to say about what's happening in Israel, but those comments will be explored in a broader category. I want to start with a story, though, from the New York Times about how depressed we are about politics on The Corey Truax Show. I suspect it would not surprise you that major, well-done research published in the New York Times finds that largely there's about almost 40% of the country that just cannot stand our political moment, our political situation. That is about the number, 40%. And man, for that matter, you would wonder about that 60%. They, they say they're not super frustrated and discouraged by it, but you have to assume they're also not satisfied by it. We're, we're going to talk about a lot, of, a lot of why that is and just some general consternation I have about that. I have one uh, medium, excuse me, one short story in the middle of the show, and then I'll finish with some thoughts about what's happening in Israel, but in a much broader geopolitical sense about the consequences of long-term actions. We'll do that and maybe some more on the on today's Corey Truax Show. Amongst many other things, I get to serve the people of Beachwood Church as their pastor for teaching. You're invited any given Sunday morning. We'd love to have you out at 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville. Just Google us. You'll find us with Beachwood uh, Beachwood Church, it's not beach like with the sand, but Beachwood is in the type of tree. It's B-E-E-C-H. Beachwood Church would love to have you. Here's the headline from the New York Times. How do Americans feel about politics? Question mark. Quote, disgust isn't a strong enough word. And it's long. Long story that basically gives you the tumult of the last 15 years. And people from the right and the left and the middle saying they just don't want to vote anymore, that they're going to vote for Robert Kennedy or some other parties. They're just frustrated with the whole thing and think we are largely governed by immature people and self-interested people, those who want to enrich themselves. Again, this is across the spectrum. It's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of disillusionment with how government works in the United States. And again, I suspect that is a lot of our feeling. I know I am largely there. When I focus, when I think about governments, I try to get my mind more and more on localism. Of course, for localism to matter, you must weaken federalism, or at least the federal level, because it continues to overstep, and so it, it just pokes its... Let me say it this way. Whether you care about government or not, it cares about you. It's in your it's in your bank account. It's in your pocketbook, or in your pocketbook, whatever. It's in your checking account. It is in your money. Whether you won't care about government or not, you're likely going to send your kid to a public school that might have a teacher inclined to get them to question their gender. And you may not care about politics, but it cares about you, and that it might have a, a book in its library that depicts graphic sex acts that your kid might come across. You don't care about politics, but sometimes it cares about you. So I don't, I don't want to denigrate the significance of the political world but I want to hold some thoughts in tension and then play for you something from Tim Keller that was on his feed this or in the last couple weeks. Obviously, Tim Keller's passed now, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian, but it's a timely word, I think, for us. Here's what I find in that story. A lot of people, right, left, and center, put a lot of faith and hope in, unfortunately, the federal government, not just even their state or local governments. They saw this thing in D.C. and thought there would be hope from it. I saw that from, again, right and left. I saw some people look at it and say, that, that, that federal government, 
it is that which will relieve me of my student debt. And I, I saw others and saw, saw the federal government. That, that force is the one that can come up with the policies to keep families together or keep men in the household. Then uh, some people look at that federal government and said that, if that is strong you know, from, from the left, it will keep me safe when I am weak. It will undergird me. And there, were, there are some that looked at the federal government and said, you will make me safe when my country is weak. Not when I am personally weak, but you'll keep me safe against foreign threat. They looked at this thing, and it doesn't seem effective. It, it's not going to do the thing it wants. It's not going to save them financially. It won't keep them safe and secure. It won't do all the things that they thought it was going to do. And so I have that reaction. I, I look at a federal government and recognize a long time ago, I, I mean, I recognized when I was like 13, 14, that thing's not good. The federal government being so big, that's not good. It really shouldn't do most of the stuff it's doing. The stuff it does do, it's almost exclusively terrible at. What? Just name it. Name the thing the federal government's done, done well. I've said many times in the past, the only thing it's really ever done well with efficiency is invade countries. We're very good at it. After we have invaded countries and killed the bad guys we wanted to kill, we don't know what to do. We're not good at that post-invasion. But whether it be a, a, a welfare system or, I mean, go back to cars for clunkers or Solyndra and clean energy. Like, we're just bad at stuff. I was listening to a, a story out of uh, WNYC. In one of the, the regulations regarding uh, shipping uh, boats, like those gigantic things that take tens, tons and tons and tons of things across the ocean, there was a regulation about the particulates that they were putting into the atmosphere because they wanted to keep the air clean. That's fine, I guess, right? Like we want to have clean air, whatever. So they made this regulation about not putting so many particulates coming out of the exhaust on those ships. And now a few years in, what the scientists, the climatologists, the oceanologists are saying, they're saying, you know what happened? Is when the particulates went in the air, the, the atmosphere was seizing on them and they would seed clouds. Clouds were being created by the particulates that these ships were giving off. And it was quite helpful because those clouds would block the ocean from direct sunlight. And it's our clearing of the air that's actually heating up the oceans a little bit more than we want them to. Now, there's, of course, these guys talked about a lot of the reasons the oceans are warmer, but they were admitting we had an unintended consequence of clearing up our air and making the oceans hotter, and the oceans hotter have made a problem. Now, the story ended very cool. Someone invented a way, this is awesome, to shoot salt water high enough into the atmosphere that the salt water is seeding clouds. That's how awesome it is. So it's it's clean. It's clean for the environment, and it's doing what we want it to do and create clouds over the oceans out in the middle of nowhere, so the oceans don't get so hot. Like that's talk about taking dominion and con- controlling the earth God gave us and t- taking good care of it. That's a cool idea, shooting salt water that far up, that far up. But they're literally just taking it out of the ocean, and shooting it up in the atmosphere. My whole point here being, bring it, bring it back, Corey. The federal government's bad at stuff, even when it wants to try to do quote a good thing, it does a bad job. And it has forever. And so my, I, I never thought it was good at stuff, but as folks start to come to the realization the federal government is bad at things, they become disillusioned. 
So I, I, and our, uh, uh, let me see, uh, let's go, let's go that way. The disillusionment with government was leading to historic lows in voter turnout. Our voter turnout was going down, 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 basically since 92. If you start, if you start, start tracking the Clinton election and all the midterms, it's important to tr- track the midterms there. Our voter participation rate was largely going down, not precipitously. It wasn't crazy numbers, but and there'd be ticks back up, like especially the Obama year, 2008. A lot of people that typically didn't vote showed up for him, but largely, um, it was it's, it's it was going down. And in 2016, it cratered. People were so disillusioned. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were so unliked that very low voter turnout allowed Trump to to get get through there. And then 2020. The disillusionment turned somehow. People were the government had gotten such had become such a big deal in everyone's lives, it fired everybody up. And I I would argue really that was just Trump. Trump is a unique character in the history of humanity. He fires people up all across the spectrum. And I suspect as the Trump fever dissipates over the coming decade, we might come back to that disillusionment where people aren't participating at very high levels. Now, so t- if we take Trump out, he's, let's assume he's an aberration for a minute. I think he is. I'm holding in one hand the New York Times telling us all this data, you all hate politics, and it's depressing you, and you don't think it's effective, it doesn't do anything very well, that number of people is growing. Now, at the same time that I'm seeing that, I'm seeing my new theological kindred, my theonomists and my post-millennial people, I, I see them as more focused on politics and government than I see just about anybody else. They now they uh, I don't want to scuttle their names, like but they are as involved in politics as like Jerry Falwell. Like Jerry Falwell was barely a pastor; he just talked about politics. It was like a Richard Reed from the '90s. It was yeah, you guys are Christians, but they are political animals. Now, granted, the guys I'm talking about, the theonomy type people that we want to see God's thinking, God's law in in, in modern day, they are actual theologians and smart people and. I have a lot, of, a lot of respect. But here I have on one side a lot of people disillusioned, and at the same moment that some people are disillusioned, there's a transcendent group of people that I think, and would argue maybe, think about it, obsess over it a little too much. It's very important. The Lord gave us governments. But there's an might be an overemphasis for some Christians, some evangelicals, the same way that there's an overemphasis for some secularists, in part because for the secularist, government is church. It's the thing that is transcendent. I've said many times before, for the secular progressive leftist, the things that the psalmist says about God, they say about government. The government is their shield and their buckler and their protector. It, it is uh, The government is the, the wings they can hide under. And so both on the, I hate the word evangelical sometimes, but on a particular part of Christianity and on secularism, it's not a... Uh, a disillusionment, it is a uh, something very fired up. They're really, they're really all about it. Which, so those two things, b- mass disillusionment, but some groups just seem to care more than they ever have. Just brings me to something I heard from Tim Keller this week that I want to bring to you. I would, he doesn't say it this way, I would just sum it up with these words. 
at least in my day, I plan on being here another, I'm 37, I don't know, 50, 60 years, somewhere in there. I, at least for the foreseeable future of my life, it's it's a project of dismantling what federal governments do so that other governments can do more things. I think that's my project. And so what, what, the way I see them right now, and while I wouldn't call myself disillusioned, but certainly not as emphatically interested as some other people, is because I suspect all I can do with government right now, this not, might not be the case for my boys and for their kids and their kids, but all I could do right now with it is probably fence in some bad things, try to put up some boundaries. But while using government to fence in bad things and try to create some boundaries, do the harder work. Like You don't defeat bad things. You don't defeat kids being confused about what, what sex they are. You don't defeat mass divorce and de, uh, the devalue of, devaluing of marriage. You don't defeat a culture of pornography and just mass fornication like sex doesn't matter. You don't defeat profligate spending that of money you don't have and, and, and borrowing, not just at government levels. Our, our credit card levels are higher than they've ever been. Granted, some of that is just bottom line is people are having to pay normal bills or credit cards because of our economic system. But that even says something about the, the way that we choose to live and our, stand, our standard of living. You don't defeat all of those things with laws yet. I don't think you do because people don't know enough. You can use governments right now to fence in some bad things, put up some boundaries, but you got to change a lot of minds and use faithfulness and along with the fences. That's what I, I guess is how I would say it. Here's Keller, though. I thought he had a, good, a very good point. Um, I might have to stop it here to clarify because this is about 14 minutes into a sermon. And so if he refers back, I'll, I'll stop in and, uh, and clarify. But a good point to finish up here, our discussion, on the tension between those disillusioned with government and those who are all about it right now. And the, and the, 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 the commentator said this. He says, that, that was Victorian religion. He says, it was Victorian religion. He says, in other words, religion is great, first of all, for the civic sphere. You have an inauguration hand on the Bible, you know, much more dignified. You're having a, a, a state funeral, do it in a church. Read the scripture, much more dignified. Or religion is also very good for national solidarity. You know, it, uh, the war is going badly, national day of prayer. Uh, you want to rally people, make sure you end your speech, God help me. You know, that's good. Or religion is very good for families, too. You, you know, you start to have a family, you start to raise a family, take those kids to church, give those kids some kind of moral fiber, show them that they have to care about other people, you know. It's good for families, it's good for the nation, it's good for the church, but me, personally, well, come on, emotion, you know, personal. And this is what he says at the end. He says, the trouble with the Victorians was that religion overshadowed them, but it didn't penetrate them. I hope you're picking up those themes. Religion, religion. let's call it some kind of, I don't know, national religion, like a nationalism of your religion, has, has been perceived by some over time as useful. It gives you cohesion. You all know what standards you're supposed to use when you're interacting with each other in business. There's common standards about marriage and sexuality. There's common standards about uh, our, our general ethics. Uh, it's, it's good to have those symbols to unify around, the... Uh, 
pledging on the Bible, those types of things. But the problem with people, this was uh, commenting on the Victorian era in England, yeah, that it, you simmer in it, you stew in it, but you never actually interact with it. And what I'm, what I'm fearful of is that we can start putting up good Christian fences that are good, they're righteous, but that we end up right back where we are now because those Christian fences just surrounded people but never really penetrated them and never changed any changed their hearts. There's a little bit more here from, from Keller that starts talking about more of the American, American version of this. It's only like a minute left, I promise. Uh, I noticed in the Arts and Leisure section of the New York Times this weekend, uh, there was a very interesting article about a new movie coming out. I haven't seen it. I don't think anybody has, called The Ice Age. And it's about 1973 in America. And it's about this fact, that we had a Victorian age here. The late 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and the early 60s, we were incredibly religious, very much like the Victorians. Everybody went to church, all sorts of things like that. Lots of morality, lots of virtue. And then in 1973, here's the point. Americans, just like the British, like like you probably, if you went to college and were religious and afterwards, no need, or were in your family and were religious and afterwards, no need, or very religious... This no need, he's saying, was earlier in the sermon, where, he, where people think they needed religion, so they had it, and as they grow up and go into college, they start to realize they didn't need it because it wasn't genuine. That's what he means when he says no need. In one church, moved to another city, and no need, or very religious in one phase of your life when you had troubles, and then later on another phase, no need. All the same thing. You're overshadowed by religion. You weren't penetrated. You hadn't met him alone. You never met him. That's a really important point. That I want us to be cautioned with, cautious about. And I think more it's, listen, caution? I think I'm just explaining to myself my own lack of emphasis on the political right now. Uh, because, it, it can, yeah, uh, the government I'm going to live in for the rest of my life can probably start making some, some good inroads. But, I mean, I just have very little faith about mass progress until I get a bunch of more people on my side. I've talked about it on the show that maybe the bunch of people on my side come from mass migration from South Korea, Nigeria, and you just give me a bunch of Christians. That'd be awesome. Uh, but it would be awesome. It'd be better, I think, to convert people here. Uh, and that's uh, that the, the Christianity he's talking about, our own Victorian age, which was beautiful. It was a beautiful time, the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. That people had a major sin, a, a terrible ethnic prejudice that was underlying. That was, that's true, just like we have all kinds of national sins all over the world. But that world was more married, stayed married more often. Kids had parents. There was more financial stability. There was that, that was a good time for families. But I'm fearful a lot of it wasn't real. It was, the word is not vestigial. That means something that you, it was a piece you, need, you didn't really need, but you have. It was more of a veneer. Like a, hip, a hypocrisy, like a, a mask, a cultural mask. And how do I know that? Well, we got here. We got to where we are. And so I think that's the disillusionment people versus the really, really into politics. I get the disillusionment people a little bit more, I think, because I just I don't have enough people on my team yet. I'm still filling out my roster. And then I, I think there can be some real progress. I don't know if we, we even make it through an episode anymore without getting into the idea of theonomy and what, what we should want, and what bringing biblical thinking about law and justice into the modern day would be like. We've talked about them all. People 
getting recompense for when they get gored by an ox or they damage someone's property or they don't prevent injuries like they're supposed to around their property or their uh, or, or their home and how those principles, when we read them in the law, might come into modern day. Uh, certainly, I suspect none of those have affected you, but you might have been affected by someone's carelessness or you might have been affected in a car accident. And if that's the case, I have a quick word for you. Those things have serious consequences. I know you come away injured, you lose income, the medical bills start to pile up. You're trying to navigate all of that process of trying to get justice while you're going through getting hurt and, and losing all that income. I don't want you to be intimidated by that if it happens to you or someone you love, if it's a car accident or getting hurt at work. Don't be scared of it. There's people that can help. The one I want to introduce you to right now is Samuel Harms. You can Google him at Samuel Harms, H-A-R-M-S. He's a personal friend of mine. His number is 864-666-6666. Samuel Harms, attorney at law. Uh, these I've seen these things really hurt people, so don't try to do it alone. Reach out to him. He can help out getting uh, getting started. He's near Woodruff Road. It's 33 Market Point Drive, Greenville, South Carolina, 29607. His number is 666-6666. If you have been hurt by someone's negligence or the modern-day version of getting gored by their ox or getting hurt on their property because they didn't put their parapet on the roof, as we've talked about, give Samuel Harms a call, 666-6666. I told you my middle topic is a, is a good bit shorter. I just want to tell you that uh, a university in Pennsylvania every year puts out a, a study of what people know and what they don't know regarding American civics. I'll give you just some of the top-line stuff. The Annenberg Public Policy Center found that uh, on, that 77% of Americans could name only one right that's specified in the First Amendment. I'd love for you to even think that through right now. What are my rights in the First Amendment? Well, I have the right to, to think what I want, believe what I want. That's freedom of religion. Congress can make no law respecting the establishment religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So I have a right to believe what I want. Two, I have a right to say what I believe, freedom of speech. I have a right to amplify to whatever effect I can my speech so I can believe what I want, say what I believe, amplify what I say. That's freedom of the press. I can, after I've amplified that and I have found some of the people that agree with me, I can gather them together, the freedom of assembly. And then when we're there, we can ask the government for a redress of grievances. Those are the five. That's how I've always put together my device to remember them. You have freedom of religion, speech, press, assembly, Petition of grievances. My point here being, only 77% can name even one, and it was freedom of speech. People in America know they can say what they want to say. That is apparently our big value. But here's some other findings in that one. Uh, Two-thirds of Americans uh, can name... Well, that's pretty good. Two-thirds of Americans can name all three branches of government. I should be appalled by it, but I'm encouraged. Uh, 10% can name two, 7% can only name one, 17% cannot name any branches of government. I could go on and on. I wanted to make a short point on this. We we have to be uninformed people. And we've been emphasizing at Beachwood Church, I think rightly, being familiar with the law, those Old Testament laws, because they provide wisdom on what we might do in modernity. We need to be first familiar with that, because the American founders were flawed, and they might not they might not have set us up uh, absolutely uh, astoundingly well in light of biblical thinking. But after that, you and your kids, can I challenge you? 
You should know your civics. If you want a resource on that, I will send it to you. PragerU does a lot of great stuff on this. But we do need to be experts. First on Bible, but then where you live. I'll just give you an example. There's this case before the Supreme Court regarding the Consumer Financial Protection Agency. This is the agency that Congress created but then funded through the Federal Reserve. And so uh, the people trying to dismantle the Consumer Financial Protection Agency Bureau, or whatever it's called, are payday lending people. I think Cody Fields and I have done a lot of work on payday lending people over on the, the show that we do sometimes, what I call the Post Mill Project. Well, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm fairly anti payday lending at this point. I, I think there's some even biblical thinking about how much interest you can you can charge, and maybe some regulation around those people. And so they come come across as a villain, and here I am saying, this is I'm. I'm on their side in this case. They are villains. They do bad things a lot of times. They take advantage of people. In this case, they just happen to be right. And if you're not well established in what you know at the Constitution, someone just says back to you, you're heartless. How could you be for these these predators? How could you be in favor of these powerful predators who take advantage of people? And you need to have the ammunition to say back, oh, no, um, this is just about Article 1, Section 8, the power of the purse strings. The document that governs us says that Congress provides funds for any given organization in the federal government. And so, like, I don't like these people. I'd love to see them shut down. They just happen to be right about this because of Article 1, Section 8. We just need to know our civics. It's going to be important to know the rules of the road if we are going to emphasize the rules for everybody. All right. Final thing for me, and this one is a little longer. Give me 8 to 10 minutes, I think. Of course, Israel was viciously invaded by Hamas over the weekend. I have not watched the videos. I have not seen the images because I don't want to. I see plenty of folks on the right telling me I have to. Like it's a moral imperative that I have to go see these gruesome things. I don't want to. I'm not going to do it. You can't make me. The verbal explanation of the terrible things that happened in Israel are are enough for me. And I, I'm prayerful for justice to be served against those who perpetrate and support those things. And I suspect the Israeli military is more than capable, especially with the support of the United States, to bring justice on those that where, where that needs to happen. That's, that's some facts, but there's, some, there's a broader thing I want to do here. This is, it's interesting, the timing, isn't it? Russia's in Ukraine. The United States seems to be in some governmental disarray, but just a few years ago, showed itself unable to even really properly withdraw from Afghanistan. We actually even have now confirmed some of the weapons used by Hamas were collected in Afghanistan. There were some things we left behind that they used. There's a, there's a, a moment you're living through history that you may not know... I'm not special. I just happened to have studied history. I was taught a lot of history in college. That was, that was what I primarily did. And I think you need to be introduced to this concept. Here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing aggression against Israel that I don't think we would have seen 20 years ago. R- Russia invading Ukraine. Not just Crimea, but Ukraine. I don't think we would have seen 15, 20 years ago. I see India's government 
becoming less integrative and more nationalist. Now the largest country in the world, India. I see China being quite bellicose towards Taiwan, and is it's it seems imminent. China just needs maybe one more hint that we are weak, and they're going to go do what they want to do in Taiwan. Here's the moment you're living through that's new. In my classes, it was called multipolarity, the theory of multipolarity. Here's the last 100 years of your, a little bit more than 100 years, really, if you think about the British uh, hegemony over the earth. There's often been bipolarness or bipolarity in the world. There were two dominant powers, and they were battling each other. In different parts of the world, even if, it, even if they weren't actually at war, they were the two pieces of tension on each other. And then different parts of the world would ally with one another in the bipolar world. But there were only two poles. If you were, a, if you were not one of those two countries, your most important foreign policy decision is which one of the two do you want to ally with? Because that's going to determine your relationship with every other country. We had a bipolar world, largely. And so your parents and your grandparents, who grew up post-World War II, grew up in bipolarity. There was the United States and there was the Soviet Union. And all that mattered in Latin America was, who are you aligned with? Are you with the Soviets or are you with the Americans? And as Africa started to develop, you know what mattered? Is we had people in Africa and the Soviets had people in mattered. And we were asking those countries as they developed, who are you aligned with? Western Europe, Eastern Europe, who are you aligned with? That alignment is all that mattered for the rest of your foreign policy. You were going to get Soviet money or American money. You were going to get Soviet weapons or American weapons. Soviet oil or American oil. Or, or at least oil from America's allies. It was bipolarity. And so if you were a, a, a Soviet ally, call it Turkey, that had a problem... Oh, no, let's do it this way. Um, India. If you were a Soviet ally, India and you wanted to open up to, uh, to, free, to free trade to the West, you didn't do that because the Soviets wouldn't, wouldn't let you. You know you have to be an ally to them. So you are making your decisions based on who your allies are. That has, because of American weakness, and then I should say this, 1991, wait, 90? 91, can't remember. The Berlin Wall falls and then... Effectively, not far far after that, Soviet Union comes to an end. And we were not in bipolarity anymore. We lived through about 20 years of unipolarity. There was the United States, and nothing was a rival to her power. As we have chosen weakness, we didn't fall back into bipolarity. It's not us in China, because China's weak. Now we're in multipolar, a multipolar world, where... The Russia is not asking, am I allied with Russia, or, or excuse me, with Russia doesn't ask if I allied with the United States or China. They just do what they want, and everyone else can figure it out. Hamas is no longer worried about their their allyship with another power. They're just going to do what they want. China's eventually just going to do what it wants. The world got got more microscopic in that not everything is in relation to the United States anymore because there's not a lot of fear of us anymore. And that's the world you're going to live in. There's, there's consequences to being weak. Weakness invites it invites aggression by some people. 
And in the case of like an India that's getting more nationalist and protectionist, it is the weakness of the United States, India thinking that the United States might not be able to protect them from China, that's making them more insular. There are realities in the end. And the reality of weakness is a multipolar multipolar world that's going to be more chaotic going forward. That's the big theme I wanted to give you. Reality, no matter the case, reality always wins. It's almost like God set up laws of nature. It may take a thousand years, but eventually reality wins. Now several other of these are just flooding into my head. The federal administration is now starting to build border wall on certain parts of the southern border. In the end, reality wins. You can't just have unfettered access to your country. It's dangerous. Especially in a multipolar world. In a world of fentanyl, in a world of drug smuggling, you can't just have an open border. And even people who pledge, I will not have any more wall built, they're having to build a wall. Because because why? Reality wins in the end. I saw this week, the San Francisco mayor is saying, our housing assistance and our welfare programs, if you are able-bodied and you're an adult with no kids, so able-bodied, no children, you have to pass a drug test. We're not giving you housing assistance. We're not giving you food assistance if you are on drugs, if you're able-bodied with no kids. That's something that you know, you, you, people like me say. You, know, you don't get help from the government if you're able-bodied, all right? And the, San Francisco's doing that. Why? Because it's, in the end, reality wins. You can't just keep paying people to do drugs. That's literally what San Francisco's been doing for about five years. They've just been paying people to do drugs and live on the street. That person's job is to do drugs. And eventually reality wins. You just can't keep doing that. I mean, I think of this one. It's so sad. It's very left-wing activist in Philadelphia. Excuse me, in New York. Big defund the police guy. He gets stabbed to death by a mentally ill young man, 18 or 19 years old, on the streets of Brooklyn at 3 a.m. And now we're seeing that, that city start to take some having some real talks about the, the cash bail system, having some real talks about how they handle some things in justice. Because eventually just reality wins. Eventually you can't just keep arresting and releasing someone. There was another murder recently. I think this was the one in, it was a home invasion, I think, in Philadelphia. Uh, that's wrong. Maybe, maybe it was one in D.C. It was a person I remember had been arrested 66 times. That was the headline. Eventually, reality wins, and you have to remove violent people. I understand that the biblical law would be a lot of those people would be put, would be put to death. I get it. I'm, tell, I'm telling you, reality wins about where we are right now. That weakness will invite aggression. That's what's happening. That you have to actually have some order about who's coming in through your border. That you can't pay people to do drugs. That just sending violent people in and out of the system is not going to work. Reality wins, and often what it does, it's ugly and hard because re- reality comes home to, to roost, and it's just, I think, I think you get where I'm coming from. It, it's kind of a hopeful point, but it's a sad point as well, because it's, it's a painful way to get there. All right, here's something I didn't do the entire show. I never said anything to you about how to contact me, and I'd love for you to do that. I usually do a Q&A or a poll on the Spotify, if you're listening on Spotify. So you can 
respond to those when I do them. Vote in those polls if, you, if you'd be so kind. If there's things you want me to talk about, I actually would love to hear that. If there's stories you see, stuff that you think is worth covering, I want that kind of feedback from you, and I would be grateful for it. So you can get me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for my weird name, Corey Truax, or get me at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. I should be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.